If you're visiting, my name is Matt, um, one of the elders and staff pastors, and this traditionally is the time in our service in which we do the most spiritual thing that we're going to do today, and that's we pray corporately. So pray with me. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We come in his righteousness and his work because we know that you hear us. We know that we have access in his name. And God, collectively, we confess that we are needy, that you are good, and that we need help. God, I would imagine in our body represents um, many couples who are struggling. Many elderly brothers and sisters who maybe have failing health. Lord, many singles, I pray that you would give them a vision to how to leverage this season of life for your glory. Many children wondering if following Jesus is something that they want. Lord, perhaps there are those of us who are spiritually dry and asking questions, suffering physically, financially. And Lord, you see and you know. So would you be kind to use your word this morning to convict us, to encourage us, to show us Christ. Lord, would you use your word to change us more and more into the image of Jesus? Would you help our lives to be different? Would we not simply come and collect data? Would we not simply come and be consumers? But would you use our lives, the lives that you've given us, for your glory, to make Jesus known? And Father, we pray not just for ourselves, but others in our community, in our country, in our world. God, you've commanded us to pray for others, so we do pray for U.S. Senators Tina Smith and Amy Klobuchar. God, we pray that you would use their lives, their positions, their legislation, to honor your name. We pray that you would convict their hearts into a saving relationship with Jesus, that they would trust in Jesus, that they would follow him, and that their lives would be uh, reflective of this. Father, we pray for other ministries in our community. We are not the only Christ followers in the Brainerd Lakes area, and we are grateful for brothers and sisters who faithfully serve and that's why we pray for the Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge and our brother Sam Anderson. Father, would you be kind to rescue men and women from addiction? Would you be kind to rescue men and women who are far off from you and draw them near? Give them a peace and a joy that surpasses understanding. And Lord, for the many things, the secret things on our hearts that perhaps we have not communicated to anyone. Broken dreams, 
unmet expectations, discouragements, sin. Father, we bring it all to you and ask you to do what you think best. We ask you to work in mighty ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, um, I would ask that you grab a copy of the scriptures and turn to James chapter 3. As you're turning there, uh, one uh, item of reminder just to keep on your radar. Our search team will be meeting tomorrow evening. Search team for a pastor of discipleship and music on the search team is uh, Donna McAnally, Colleen Doles, uh, Joe Cartwright, Ryan Mulder, uh, and Matt Nagel. And I uh, just pray that you, uh, I'd ask that you pray for this team. You know, it's funny, I, I come here, I'm looking at this pulpit, and we pulled this out of the closet. I don't know what you guys were doing here last Sunday, but the pulpit was broke. So they pulled this out of the closet, and uh, Dave, thank you for serving us last week and breaking the pulpit. So It's good to worship with you. Our series in James is a call to faith in action. I'll ask that you grab a copy of scriptures if you haven't. Turn to chapter 3. We'll be in verses 13 through 18. And our sermon title this morning is, Who is really wise? Who? I think that's a prevalent question today. Just as there likely were people in James's day propping themselves up as teachers in our passage last week, I think there's also a strong likelihood that people were self-proclaimed sages of their day. The ones with true wisdom, and it's no different today, whether it's a political party, an employer, your parents, your kids, leaders, finance experts on TikTok, TikTok, everyone, everyone has an opinion. Everyone claims to be wise and having a corner on true wisdom. And wisdom really often is seen as having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. So we find ourselves, at least maybe I do, I don't think I'm the only one, we find ourselves walking around in this life thinking that, well, my knowledge, experience, and judgment is superior to others. I must be wise. I've been telling my kids that for years. And we know James was a pastor because he seems to have the unique ability to plainly show us, his readers, and I'm sure himself, that we're not really as smart or wise as we think we are. James is going to make an argument in our passage this morning that wisdom cannot be merely defined by things like knowledge and experience, but rather wisdom displays itself in our actions. The main point of our text, the main idea, the action that we are called to in this passage is this. Faithful followers of Christ wisely, wisely make peace. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but throughout our letter, James has been contrasting two ways of life. In chapter 1, there was one way where the person says they are religious, well, and then there's the other way, the person who's actually religious. 
and follows what James says in 126, true religion, being a person of action. Well, in chapter 2, we are confronted with the way of simply talking about practicing true religion and caring for your neighbor. And that's contrasted with the way of actually caring for your neighbor and not showing partiality and serving others. Even last week, in the beginning of James 3, will we follow the way of using our words and our tongue to bless? Or will we follow the way of using our tongue and our words to curse? It's no different this morning. There are two ways of wisdom, James says. A worldly way of wisdom and the way of heavenly wisdom. James frames the conversation and these two paths at the beginning of verse 13 with this question. Would you read it with me? Who? Who is wise and understanding among you? Well, James helps us consider which path holds true wisdom. Let's look at the first way, the way of worldly wisdom. Read with me the end of 13 through 16. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Notice first what James does not say. What does James not say about worldly wisdom? Well, he doesn't point his readers to first century antagonists to Christianity. He doesn't call out Rome. He doesn't malign the atheist. He doesn't say the ones who have worldly wisdom are the Muslims or the Jews or the CEOs or the tax collectors. He doesn't call into question the wisdom, identity, and the lifestyle choices of the world outside of Christ. Who is he addressing in our passage? Who is he seeking to guard from worldly wisdom? Well, look at the beginning of verse 14 again. But if you, you, whose wisdom is James most primarily concerned about? Yours, mine, Lakewood, faithful followers of Christ, the body, Christians who say Jesus is Lord. So we have to ask this question of James and of our passage and really the entirety of the scriptures. Why? Why is this addressed to us? Why do we read through Moses and the prophets and their primary concern about Israel's life and wisdom? Why is Jesus concerned with the faith and the wisdom of religious people and not the state government? Now, don't get it twisted. I am not saying 
that there is worldly wisdom in the world that needs to be talked about. But no doubt we live, just as James and Jesus did, we live in a world that desperately needs a recalibrated mind and heart in Christ. We live in a world that is broken, that lives and thinks contrary to God. Yeah, sure. And yes, maybe the world is in rebellion or simply unaware of God's word and commands. If you are here considering Christianity or you've been a faithful follower of Christ for years, you need to know that the commands of God and the implication of the gospel, it weighs heavy on everyone. Ultimately, we and the whole world will stand, will stand accountable for our response to him. That is true. But the question remains, why is James focusing on the wisdom of the church? Well, an illustration might be helpful here. You look down on a struggling parent, but your kids are brats too. Younger person, maybe you blow off an older person because they show you little grace, but you're not showing them any grace either. Or what about those of us who judge flagrant, explicit sins of others, but we secretly hide our own? Maybe a song lyric would be helpful. Your pops caught you smoking and he says, no way. That hypocrite smokes two packs a day. What would we say to all those things? What is our response to those things? How about you get your own house in order before you start pointing fingers? How about you address the log in your eye before you point out the speck somewhere else? That is the aim, brothers and sisters. That is the aim of our passage this morning, that we would consider worldly wisdom in us. Is there worldly wisdom out there? Sure, of course there is. We should expect that. The primary question, the question of first importance is this. Is there worldly wisdom in here? Is there worldly wisdom in here? That's the question. Perhaps before we seek to influence the world and the culture around us, we should seek to change our own hearts and our own church. So what exactly is worldly wisdom that James is warning us from? Well, please look back to verse 14. And there's some implied language there, but let me make it explicit. Here's a quote of someone's paraphrase of verse 14. Look at verse 14. If you claim to be wise, while at the same time you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast about your so-called wisdom and be false to the truth. So worldly wisdom seems to be caught up kind of in two main categories here. Bitter jealously, jealously and selfish ambition. But what is that and do we have it? Uh, you may have a translation that says bitter envy for that first phrase. I like that better than my translation. Really, at its core, the word bitter envy has this idea of excitement, indignation, and fervor. Well, those things, 
That, that kind of envy, that kind of excitement and zeal, it's not necessarily bad. Well, until you add bitterness to it, then it gets dangerous, right? But actually, that word bitter that James uses is the same word as verse 11. Look back at verse 11 from our passage last week. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Well, the word actually isn't salt. It's bitter. And James uses that same word. So he's, he's asking, is bitterness, and really, you could say salt and bitter are similar, but it, it has this idea like taking a drink of milk that's long past expired. You know the milk that your kids leave on the counter way too long? Well, you take a drink of it. It's piercing. It's pungent. It's harsh. It's like salt water because it's dehydrating. It's not life-giving. So back to verse 14. This kind of envy, this kind of zeal, this kind of excitement and fervor. Is it bitter? Is it harsh? Is it pungent to others around you? Does your indignation bring life to the church? Or does it turn to envy? You see, James is pointing us to worldly wisdom, and he doesn't point to secular thinking. He doesn't warn us about rationalism, humanism, or higher criticism. He says that worldly, earthly wisdom manifests itself in bitterness and envy. It manifests itself in our actions. That's worldly wisdom. You know, I tried to think of ways in which this might be true in our church. What, how might bitter envy show up at Lakewood? And I don't, I don't know, but I would imagine it might look something like maybe being cliquish. You know, you go to a lot of churches sometimes and there's this cliquish nature where people are, are separated from one another. It's not life-giving, it's pungent. Yeah, maybe there's some zeal, but it feels bitter and there's jealousy and envy. I think, I think, I think that could potentially be a manifestation of bitter envy, being cliquish, certainly how we use our words. But this idea of dehydrating indignation kind of really stuck with me. Are you a dehydrating person? I'm not asking if you're drinking eight cups of water a day. Are you someone who is like a cool cup of water to a brother and sister when you come to church? In your interactions, not just on Sunday, but through the week. I think oftentimes, maybe it's just because we live in northern Minnesota. <laughs> we look and sound like the grumpiest people. It's okay to smile on Sunday. It's okay to clap your hands. It's okay to maybe look like Jesus has done something in your heart. I think sometimes even our, our bitter envy can manifest itself just in how our face looks. Maybe we need a recalibrated face too, not just a mind and heart. But that, that's not the only characteristic of worldly wisdom, this bitter envy. I want us to look at this next phrase in verse 14. It's really not a phrase. It's actually one word. It's this word selfish ambition. 
This really has the idea just of selfishness. In the Greek world, leading up to the first century, there were writers, these Greek writers like Aristotle, maybe you've heard his name. He would use this word, selfish ambition, to explain, quote, selfish ambitious people are those seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Selfishness, selfish ambition in James's day, had the idea of kind of being a political operative, of seeking your own power and your own self-interest. James says, you know what's worldly? You know what worldly wisdom is? Seeking, operating, functioning as a political advocate or activist or a spy or an agent to obtain your own personal desires in the church. Does this happen in the church? Well, obviously, James thought it was an issue that he had to confront in the first century church, and it's certainly true today. Worldly wisdom is one that acts selfishly in the church. And here's some ways we may see it in our hearts here at Lakewood. When we champion our preferences as the way, That's selfish ambition. When our membership is only a means to control and not to serve, that's selfish ambition. When our relationships are more about scheming than loving, that's selfish ambition. When we assign, When we assign ownership of Lakewood Church to ourselves and not to Christ, that's selfish ambition. This isn't our church. This is Jesus' church. When we make much of ourselves and little of Jesus, that is selfish ambition, brothers and sisters. How does James describe this worldly wisdom? How does he describe bitter envy and selfishness? Well, look again at verse 15. This wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. If we see our actions are bitter, not life-giving, having improper zeal and fervor, selfish and even a political ambition for power in the church, James says that's demonic. You know, it makes me think of Peter's interaction with Jesus Peter thought it'd be a good idea to tell Jesus, hey, I know, you, I know you're making some plans, but those aren't good plans. What is Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. If you are operating in a way that seeks your own selfish ambition, Jesus might come to us and say, get behind me, Satan, because you're operating in a way that is contrary to the kingdom of God. Well, that's how James describes our worldly wisdom. But what is the product of living and acting this way? If you and I have selfish ambition, if we have bitter envy in our hearts, what is the fruit of that? Well, verse 16 tells us, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. 
The product of worldly wisdom in our lives, in our church, is disorder, destruction, secrets, and open sin, and ultimately, ultimately, a tarnishing of the name of Jesus Christ, who we claim to be faithful followers of. God help us. May he protect our hearts and our church from this kind of action, this kind of wisdom. May it never be. That is one path. That is a path that maybe some of us have walked down far too often. But it's not the only path that James lays out. We can and live and function as a church family in worldly wisdom or, well, I'm ready for some good news, let's consider the heavenly wisdom that he shows us. Would you read with me, please, verse 17 and 18? But, in contrast, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Please notice again what James does not say. When it comes to having wisdom from above, he doesn't reference the complexities and the knowledge of knowing church history and the nuance of secondary doctrine. He doesn't argue for a certain measure of experience in or out of the church or a certain age that must be met to be wise. Children, Read Psalm 119, 99, and 100. That's your homework. James doesn't even say that wisdom of believers is ultimately the product of their refined takes on cultural issues of their day. Now, I'm curious. I asked this at the dinner table this week. When you think of someone who is wise, who comes to mind? Is it age? Well, throughout church history, wisdom has been seen in an eclectic range of ages, from old and white hair down to gasp, even children and teens. There have been many who have wisely affected the church. Well, when it comes to wisdom, do you think of just men or just women? Nope. Wrong again, whether it's Priscilla or Elizabeth Elliot or Martin Luther or a 19-year-old pastor named Charles Spurgeon. Brothers and sisters, men and women have wisely served the church. Do you think of highbrow academics, perhaps? No, surely there have been ivory tower brilliance in the academy, but there have been brilliant, uneducated men and women who've served the church. Well, maybe wisdom is from a certain time, a certain place, a certain period. That's where wisdom is from. Well, that's not true either. Because whether it's Augustine in Africa in the 4th century, Calvin in Arminius in the 16th century, or Justin Bieber in the 21st century, wisdom is not found in one time or place. Okay, maybe not Justin Bieber. Rather, Rather, James argues that heavenly wisdom, wisdom from above, is one that manifests itself in our character and our action. 
So look at character first in verse 17. Look at these characteristics of heavenly wisdom. Pure. Peaceable. Gentle. Open to reason. Full of mercy and fruit. Impartial and sincere. James, this pastor, he just won't let it go. Faith in the Christian life is one of action. Faithful followers of Christ, they do stuff. They are full of the fruit of the Spirit of God. Character shaped by a relationship with God. This again points us to gospel realities. Here's the gospel. Mankind is naturally flawed broken, and living contrary to God. But but God in His kindness and love, He sent His Son, the God-man, Jesus, to rescue us. And He didn't rescue us by pulling us out of this world. It wasn't Star Trek. He didn't beam us up, Scotty. We're still here. But rather, the rescue of Jesus, the rescue of humanity was sending Jesus to live a perfect life, to fulfill all laws and commands that God would put on us. Jesus took that perfect life and he cashed it in. But for his own benefit? No. He died on a cross willingly. He suffered the wrath of God and substituted himself in our place. He died for sinners. He satisfied the payment for sin. And then... Three days later, he physically and literally rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. And the promise of God, the promise of God is this, that whoever believes in him will not perish. Whoever believes in him will not know judgment, but will have everlasting life, forgiveness, peace, a new heart, and a new life starting now. Starting now, that's the promise. That gospel is the basis of verse 17. Heavenly wisdom is not a product of you trying harder. Heavenly wisdom is not you taking verse 17 and saying, I'm just going to be more moral. Heavenly wisdom is not reading the right stuff. Heavenly wisdom, a character that displays itself in wisdom, is a product of the Lord Jesus Christ, changing your heart and giving you a new life. A wisdom from above comes from above. Do you you catch that? A wisdom from above, it comes from above. It can't be manufactured. Here are some diagnostic questions for us to ask as faithful followers of Christ. In verse 17, James says that heavenly wisdom is pure. Do I pursue holiness or do I indulge in sin? Heavenly wisdom is peaceable. Do I aim for unity or arguments? Heavenly wisdom is gentle. Am I tender and warm in relationships or am I cold and hard? 
Heavenly wisdom is open to reason. Am I willing to listen to those I disagree with and represent them fairly? Or do I resort to name-calling and half-truths? Do we see that in our culture? Heavenly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit. Do I extend mercy or do I make people pay for their mistakes? Heavenly wisdom is impartial. Do I treat all people as image bearers or do I play favorites? Heavenly wisdom is sincere. Am I sincere in my care for people or am I a fake? You see, true biblical wisdom is an action in a life that faithfully follows Christ. True heavenly wisdom from above is manifested in our relationships and how we treat others and how we engage the world around us. Perhaps, like me, perhaps in these moments, you look at this passage and you see a lack of character in your own heart. I know I'm not the only one. If you see a lack of character, if you see that perhaps you've had an unbiblical view of what true wisdom is, that's okay. It's okay. Because there is great grace for you in the gospel of Christ. Repent. Turn away from the facade of wisdom that you may be clinging to. Turn to Christ. He will shape your heart and give you greater wisdom that is manifested in your character. But James, lastly, wants to point us not just the character, but the actions, the actions that come from that character. Look at verse 18 again. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. One writer uh, suggested this. He wrote, quote, These Christian virtues characterize a church marked by peace and cooperation rather than strife and competition. Lakewood, do you know what will tear our church apart? Worldly wisdom. Do you know what will heal us, unite us, and give us incredible opportunity to worship God and to point others to Him? Do you know what will make us effective in reproducing faithful followers of Christ? You and I taking action. You and I actively seeking to wisely make peace with one another and the people that God has put in our life. We must take action. We must wisely make peace. We must be different from the world. We must be an outpost of heaven where people come here and they taste and experience just a glimmer of what the new heavens and earth will offer. An appetizer, if you will. A small glimpse into what heaven will be like one day in the presence of Jesus. God help us. God, help us to truly be wise. Do you find it interesting that in the Old Testament, wisdom is personified as a person, especially in the book of Proverbs? Proverbs 3.17 shares this. Her, wisdom, 
Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Now, I I read a quote once that said this. The effect of these traits of wisdom is peace and righteousness for the family of God. If earthly wisdom brings strife, the wise man brings unity and peace. Question. Who ultimately is the wise man who brings peace? Who is Proverbs 3.17 talking about? Who is the personified wisdom? It's, it's not you. It's not me. No, the obvious answer is Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of that personification. Jesus is the man who was truly wise. Jesus manifested heavenly wisdom in his character and his actions perfectly. Jesus is ultimately the one who brings peace to our hearts by his spirit. And my friends, what Jesus sows, there will be reaping. What Jesus begins, we will see come to fruition. What Jesus has started, he will finish. Jesus is the one who makes peace in us and through us. Brothers and sisters, James is not calling you to a moral life. He's calling you to a renewed life and a changed heart in the gospel. As it says, as James says in verse 13, we are commanded to show our wisdom in humility and meekness. We show our wisdom by our conduct, by the good works that God produces in us. Do you see? Do you see the glory of Christ? What he requires of you. He requires heavenly wisdom. What he requires of you, Christian, he will enable and produce in you. Isn't that good news? What he requires of you, he will enable and produce in you. It's all about him. So tomorrow, Monday morning, through the week, seek to behold the glory of Jesus. Look to him and be changed. Be a doer of the word, not just a hearer, and ask him to give you wisdom that manifests itself, not merely in knowledge or experience, but in action, in love, and in making peace. Faithful followers of Christ wisely make peace. Would you pray with me that God would help us do that this week? Father, We pray now because we need help. We don't pray because it's a cute thing to do at the end of a sermon. We don't pray because it's tradition before a meal or after a meeting. Father, we come to you and we pray because we say the way of heavenly wisdom is out of our grasp. The way of heavenly wisdom cannot be manufactured. Wisdom from above must come from above. So, Father, in the life that you've given us this week, would you help our character and our actions display the fruit of the Spirit? 
Would you help us to be a shining light in a world that knows only bitter envy and selfish ambition? Lord, help us to be like Christ, who considers the needs of others more important than ourselves. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.